Welcome on this Labor Day weekend. I hope you guys are having a wonderful weekend and I'm just really looking forward to opening up God's word and really talking to you about what God has been really just teaching me in this season this year. And let me tell you, I'm not going to lie, it's been a really, really hard season. Um, Ray and I launched our firstborn just a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I remember when we first had him, you know, you bring him home and other older parents, they see and they go, oh, they talk all wistfully about how cute the baby is. And inevitably they say, the days are long, but the years are short. I hear it. You guys heard it too, right? Oh my goodness. I hated that saying. Because for me, the days were long. That's true. But that first year felt like an eternity. And part of it was on me, right? Because I was a new mom and I was figuring out like how to mom. But then also I was trying to figure out how to not lose myself while being a parent. And I just was really, really, really unsure. But lo and behold, God did something amazing. I fell in love with parenting. And you know, I crafted over the years this beautiful idea of what it was always going to be like, what my relationship with my boys was going to be like. And it was always going to be this way until Aiden's senior year. Y'all, seriously, the first become last. And your kid becomes an adult and suddenly doesn't need you anymore. Or at least that's what he says. And it feels true. And then all of the joys and wonder of the season that you thought was going to be so amazing because that's what you've been pushing for all along. It just doesn't happen. It's really, really sad. And that idea of what you thought your life was going to be like, it just starts to unravel before your eyes. And what I thought was going to be this tremendous, joyous season I found myself with like a pit of fear in my stomach, crying suddenly for no reason. And I am not a crier, y'all. And watching the joy of the things that I love just fade away. And the more I tried to get a handle on it, oh my goodness, the messier it got. And those emotions got so big, the sadness, the fear, the unknown, they were so big, bigger than the possibilities for the future, bigger than what Ray and I had been praying for for Aiden. And even, I gotta confess, at times, they felt bigger than God. You know, and that's when the guilt and the shame and the doubt kicked in. Because how big could my faith actually be if I couldn't trust God in these moments? Surely he's given me everything I need to figure this out. But these big emotions just kept and they were overwhelming. And they were more in charge than I was. Has anybody ever been there? In these moments that feel so big where these emotions take over, it's hard to see through them and remember what's true. And you know what? It doesn't even have to be a big giant life change like launching your firstborn. It could be something as simple as a new job, a new boss, a new class, a new teacher. It could be something as simple as your best friend moving away and you don't know what that relationship is going to be like now. It could be something that you've looked forward to and you've planned and you've crafted with these great expectations around and then it happens and it's not how you thought it was going to go. You know, any of these things can cause really big emotions in us. And here's the thing, emotions aren't the problem. 
You know, God is an emotional God. We see this all throughout scripture. He relates to us with emotions big and small, and we were made in his image. So that means it's not a problem for us to have emotion, for us to have feelings too. The thing is, we got to remember that those feelings are an indicator, kind of like on our smartphone. It's a notification that something's going on. The problem is when those notifications are in the driver's seat, when they're the ones in charge. And we put those feelings above God and let them reign over us. And see, I kind of thought that maybe this was just a modern problem. You know, we talk a lot about feelings now. And lo and behold, God took me to a passage in the Old Testament to this guy, this prophet that we see defiantly stand down the baddest king in Israel who shamelessly throws shade at rival gods and this God's prophets, calls down fire from heaven, woohoo, right? And then in the very next scene, he's dejected. He's cowering in fear and absolute sadness. He's alone and he's at a loss in the wilderness. In that moment, he's done. He's gone from the highest high to the lowest low. And here's the thing. He's one of the goats. He's like one of the greatest prophets of all time. If this can happen to him, what does that tell us about how we can navigate these seasons for us? This guy's name is Elijah. And so I want you, if you can, we're going to pick up his story in 1 Kings 18. So you can turn or scroll with me on your electronic device, however you prefer to do this. But let me also take a minute. I want to kind of set the scene. At this point, Israel is a divided kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom of Israel here. And like I said, there's a king, and he's the most wicked king in all of Israel's history. It actually says he did the most to anger God. You really want that title, don't you? Yeah. No, you don't. And so here's what I picture. I picture like a Jafar-like character, complete with like evil maniacal scowl and like the little like squiggly beard that he can like pull, you know? And he's just sitting there figuring out like how he can make God angry. And then in his corner is his queen, Jezebel. Now, he met this woman. She's a foreign queen. She comes in. They get married, okay? And here's the thing about her. First Kings paints her as a very formidable enemy. She's going to lure the entire land astray. Everybody is charmed and intimidated by her. I picture her as kind of like a Mother Gothel entangled, except put aside the hair obsession that Mother Gothel has and and replace it with Jezebel's obsession, which is that everybody worships her kingdom's false gods. Baal and Asherah, okay? And Baal is her storm god, okay? It's the god who's in charge. He's often pictured throwing thunder and lightning, which that sounds pretty intimidating, but he's also the god of wind, weather, and crops. And remember that because that's gonna come into play here, okay? All right, and Jezebel and Ahab, they're a power couple, and they have slowly turned everybody in Israel away from Yahweh, away from the one true God. They have them worshiping. They've torn down all the worship places for Yahweh. They've replaced them with places for idol worship. And you know what ends up happening is Jezebel even goes so far as to hunt down anybody who doesn't follow Baal. The entire nation has turned its back on God. And you know what? Nobody seems to care. 
And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Elijah appears on the scene. Literally, he just kind of pops onto the scene in chapter 17. And when he shows up to Ahab, here's what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Okay, so Elijah shows up and he's like, no rain at all, because God says so. Now remember, the God that they are worshiping, the false God, is a storm God who's in charge of weather. God is explicitly taking on Baal. And it's a pretty good calling card for Elijah to show up on the scene. And what ends up happening is there's no rain for three years, y'all. Three years. That's a really long time. And during this time, we see God constantly take care of Elijah. He goes out to this brook where God tells him to go. He has water to drink there, and God sends ravens to feed him, which is kind of gross, but also kind of cool. I don't know. And then after the brook dries up, God sends Elijah to this widow's house where she has this jar of flour and oil that God makes, that God continually replenishes so they always have food to eat over the course of this whole three years. And and Elijah waits on God, and God continually provides, and Elijah is faithful. And then, three years in, God says, all right, Elijah, it's time. It's on. I want you to go to Ahab, and I want you to tell him that there's a face-off coming. And so that's what he does. Here's Here's the challenge he says. He says, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. God is going to send rain, but not before he shows the entire nation who the one true God is. And so Ahab sends out a call and everybody comes to Mount Carmel. And so Elijah, he starts, get with, he starts with this off. He says, all right, let me remind us of why we are all here, right here, right now. Here's what's going to happen. You guys have been wavering between two opinions. If the Lord is God, I want you to follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. He then sets up the rules for this face-off. He says, here's what's going to happen. Baal prophets, you guys are going to build an altar. You're going to put down the wood. You're going to put out the sacrifice. And I'm going to build an altar to my God. And I'm going to put the wood and the sacrifice. And then you know what? We're going to see what happens next. Here's what he says. Then you call on the name of your God. And I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. All right, so at first light, the Baal prophets set up their altar, okay? And they, they build it, they put the wood, they put the sacrifice, and they start calling out their God. And they're dancing, and they're calling on the name. They're sitting there saying, come on, show up, show up, show up. Hours and hours and hours this goes on. It gets to be noon, and nothing has happened. No fire, nothing. Now, Elijah at this moment decides... This is a great time to kind of, you know, boast a little bit and see what's going to happen here. He starts teasing and taunting these prophets. Now, here's the thing I'm thinking. Elijah, it's just you on Yahweh's team. And there's like 800 prophets over here, not to mention an evil king. Don't you think you might want to hold back a little bit? But 
Elijah doesn't do that. Look, this is great, the words that he says. Now, depending on the translation that your Bible has, that's going to tell you a little bit about what the taunts are. But the NIV says, perhaps, Elijah says, perhaps Baal is deep in thought. That's why he's not responding to you. The NLT has something pretty good. It says, perhaps he's daydreaming, or maybe he's gone out to like use the restroom. The message says, maybe he's gotten involved in a project or he's on vacation. But all of them say, hey, he's, what if he's asleep? You just need to be a little louder and you might wake him up. So what does the Baal prophets do? They go on even louder. They yell and scream and rant and rave. And this continues on until the sun starts to set. And there's an altar with wood and a sacrifice, but no fire. Nothing has happened. And now it's Elijah's turn. So Elijah invites the people of Israel to come and rebuild God's altar. You guys want to come and help me? All right. So let me give you some stones to rebuild the altar here. And they take 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel, and they start to rebuild the altar. You guys can do it however you want. I'm just setting them out here for you. All right. All right. Here we go. All right. And then while this is going on, Elijah digs a trench. Okay, there you go. Elijah digs a trench around it, and then he puts the fire, the, I'm sorry, puts the wood on top and the sacrifice and everything. Ooh, that looks good. I like it. All right. And then he says, hey, guess what? We're going to make this a little harder. So I have these big giant jugs, like they're like 12 gallon jugs. I have four of them. I want you to pour it on the altar. Okay. So they pour the water on the altar, right? And he's like, I want you to do it again. You're thrilled by this. It'd be heavy. Ready? So then he's like, let's do it a third time. All right, so here we go. Now, do fire and water mix well? No. The point that Elijah is making is this. If anybody is going to set this thing on fire, it's going to be who? God. And at this point, the trench is completely filled with water. The altar is completely saturated. And Elijah turns to pray. And this is what he prays. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, are, you Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. It's beautiful, isn't it? And God shows up in an amazing way. He shows up with fire. All right, so we're going to do this safely. All right, so here's what's going to happen. You get this one. You get this one. Here, hold on. You're going to fire. All right, so this is going to be our fire. Ready? You guys got it? Three, two, one. You got it? Whoop, one. You got it? I need a little help. Need a little help? All right, ready? Here, turn with me. Three, two, one. Oh, you got the hard one. Ah, we had to go the other way. All right, thank you guys so much. Go ahead and take that back. Woo. All right, so fire comes down from heaven. And here's what it says. It says it burned up the whole sacrifice, the wood, the stone, the soil. It licked up all the water from the trench. And here's the beautiful thing. Look at how the people respond. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. <sighs> then 
shortly after, Elijah prays and rain falls on the land again. A land that has been spiritually dry and physically dry is now being replenished by God. And a people are called back to following him. What must this have been like for Elijah? This is like three and a half years of work. And he calls on the name of the Lord and watches fire descend on the altar. It's gone. And he watches a people whose hard-heartedness has been in his face the whole time. And they come back to God. In this moment, he's reminded of the power of the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Oh, he must have worshiped like nobody's business. You see, when God shows up in all sorts of amazing, powerful ways in our lives, it's an opportunity for us to worship as a way to say thank you. It's an opportunity for us to remember those moments when the odds were stacked against us, but God, ultimate God, showed and reigned his power and love on us. So this is an invitation for us to worship right here, right now. Please stand and reflect on those awesome moments when God has shown up in amazing and surprising ways. There's a name that levels mountains Cause out highways in the seas There's some power and rebel battles Right in front of me And there's a faith that stands to fight Sends Goliath to his knees. I've seen his praise unravel shackles right off my feet. Cause that's the power of your name. Just a mention makes a way. Giants fall and strongholds break. There's a hope that calls our courage In the furnace unafraid The kind of daring expectation That every prayer I make Is on an empty grave That's the power of your name Just a mention makes a way Giants fall and strongholds break And there is healing That's the power that I 
It's a wonderfully awesome thing to behold the power and presence of God. And I have to imagine that for Elijah, this must have been a really unique experience to see an entire people turn, to think this is the defining point in a nation. Everything that they have worked hard for, that the king's heart would change, revival would come to the land. I think he would have come back from Mount Carmel and been like, yes! But guess what? That's not what happened. No sooner does Ahab go back to Jezebel and tell her what's going on than Jezebel issues a decree. She says, I swear by my God Baal that no sooner than the end of the day happens, I'm going to kill Elijah. I'm coming for you. It's going down. I'm hunting you. Now, here's the thing. Baal was just defeated in a face-off. She can swear by the God who didn't show fire all she wants, right? So you would think like Elijah, who's sitting there like boasting in God, like, yeah, this is when he's like, whatever. I've got the one true God, Yahweh, on my side. Do whatever you want. But that's not what actually happens. It says here in chapter 19, verse 3, that Elijah hears this and he's afraid and he runs for his life. Wait, what? Mr. Confidence, Mr. Sure, Mr. Who God has continued to provide for, he flees. He runs a hundred miles away to Beersheba. And then there he leaves his servant. And he goes on a whole another day's journey into the wilderness where he sits down under a broom bush. He's worn out. He's starving. He's alone. He's dejected. And he's done. And that's exactly what he tells God. 
Now look, here's the thing where I would have thought God would show up and express disappointment in his prophet. After all, Elijah is the official messenger of God, okay? And it doesn't work when your hype man doesn't actually believe the hype. This lack of faith, like you think God would be like, hey now, come on man, don't you remember all the times when I showed up for you? But that's not what God does. Look at what he does for Elijah. In verse five, he lets Elijah sleep. He gives Elijah rest. He provides food and water for Elijah in verse six. And he sends an angel to minister to Elijah in verse five through eight. He knows that Elijah's at a point where he can't do all this for himself and he is gonna make, and God is gonna make sure that Elijah gets taken care of. He provides exactly what Elijah needs physically. He knows Elijah's human. He knows that he's frail and he meets Elijah right there. God's kindness, his compassion, his tender care and grace in this moment astounds me. And it's the very thing that, it's the first thing that I forget. God also knows that Elijah needs something more. And so he provides exactly what Elijah needs to travel and then sends Elijah on a 40-day journey to Mount Horeb which is also, also called Mount Sinai. That is the mountain of God, the mountain where so much history has taken place, right? Moses see, sees the burning bush there. The 10 commandments come down to the people. Moses sees God on Mount Sinai. And Elijah has his own journey there. And while he's there, God meets with Elijah in a cave. First Kings 19, nine says, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replies, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. It's all over, Elijah tells God. All of that fantastical power on Mount Carmel, it just wasn't enough. We can't top it, God, and faith in Yahweh is gonna end with me. That's all that Elijah sees. It's big, it's disappointing, it's dire. It seems to him insurmountable. And God's not dismayed with Elijah's discouragement or lack of faith. In this moment, he's gonna provide one more thing that Elijah needs the power of the goodness of his presence. So he tells Elijah, go outside the cave. I'm gonna meet you there. And Elijah goes and a roaring wind comes and starts to tear down the rocks on the mountain face. But God is not there. And then the earth shakes in an earthquake and it seems like the very foundations of Sinai are gonna fall and God is not there. And then fire billows on the side of the mountain, fire reminiscent of what he just sent on Mount Carmel, but God's not there either. And as all of these cataclysmic events fade and dissipate, everything gets quiet. And Elijah hears the whisper thin voice of God. That is where God shows up. That is what penetrates Elijah's heart a voice so intimate that he covers his face at the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
And then God asked the question again. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now the Hebrew shifts here. In the first question, it's this formal word, devar. Okay, it's the voice of God. It's the voice of God to his messenger prophet. It's formal, it's a decree, it's an edict. It's not, it's not intimate or close at all. But then in the second time, it's the word coal. It, it talks about a private, personal voice. It's the same word as we see in verse 12 when God shows up in the whisper. God isn't addressing his prophet with a message for the masses. He uses his voice to speak to the man. Elijah is seen. Elijah is loved. God comes down from on high to talk to him, to reach through the feelings and the disappointment that have overshadowed God's presence in Elijah's world. Don't miss this. God isn't relating to Elijah as creator to creature, although that is true. He's personally engaging Elijah as Elijah's one true God who sees and hears Elijah, who cares deeply by, uh, about Elijah and who wants to be with Elijah even in Elijah's current state. The whisper thin voice shows us just how close God wants to be to us and the power that his holy presence can be when it shows up in our lives. You know, this is when you would think that everything would change for Elijah, that his response would be totally different. But the funny thing is in the next verse, Elijah repeats word for word exactly the same thing that he said before in his complaint. To be honest, that's gutsy. This is when you wish the written word had tone because I imagine it probably didn't sound the same. But what Elijah's emphasizing here is his situation, it hasn't changed. The people still rebel. No one else is following Yahweh. There are people who are hunting him down. It's like he's saying, yes, God, I see you in your greatness and your goodness, but what are we gonna do now? And we don't see God's response. We get to hear what he says. And God's not frustrated with Elijah. He doesn't throw the fact that he's God back in Elijah's face. He stays with Elijah. He wants to point out to Elijah that he's still here. And God reminds Elijah that God isn't finished with Israel or Elijah. And he, Elijah's still part of what God is doing. And just like Yahweh has done throughout Elijah's ministry, God is going to continue to provide. Elijah, now having heard God's voice though, can turn to God for what he needs. So God tells Elijah to go back the way he came, but Elijah has a new purpose. God gives Elijah some tasks to do. He wants him to appoint a couple kings, to appoint a new prophet to apprentice under him so that that way God can still guide his people. And then as a side note, he kind of throws this little thing to Elijah and says, by the way, there's 7,000 people in Israel who still worship me and have never bowed before Baal. You know what? You are not the only one. Worship of me will continue in the land long after you're gone. Elijah really is not alone. 
And God has met Elijah when he's troubled, discouraged, and at his worst. He prov- he's provided physically, emotionally, socially, mentally, spiritually for Elijah. And Elijah leaves that mountain with his circumstances unchanged. But he's now heard God's voice. And he knows what to listen for again. A powerfully intimate encounter with God has refocused him on the future work that God is doing in and through him. And it's at this point I found myself in Elijah's story. Now, I'm not not the broom bush and the fire that descended on the altar or any of that, but I found myself relating to where he was at when he was discouraged and unable to see beyond what he was feeling. And so what happened is as graduation approached and those big feelings kept coming, every time I had a big feeling, I just started kind of talking to God. We had more conversations. You know, my circumstances didn't change and I still found myself surrounded by these big emotions that got the better of me. But you know what? God and I were talking and I was listening more and more for what he might be saying. And then a couple weeks ago at convocation, when we're dropping Aiden off, we're sitting in the auditorium and God showed up. So at Wheaton, each class has a verse. And so the president was reading the verse over the freshman class. And as he's doing this, I'm listening to the words of the verse, but it's like I have a flashback and I'm transported back into that nursery in our first house where I would sit in a rocking chair before Aiden was born. I would rock and I would pray over him. He hasn't even born yet. He hasn't even taken his first breath. And the themes of the verse that was being said over the class were the same themes of the very things that I prayed in that room 19 years ago. I was undone. I was shocked. It was God's whisper to me. And what he was saying in that moment is, I have him in the palm of my hand, and I always have, and I always will. I love to tell you that I walked out of that chapel with a peace that passed all understanding, and the emotions weren't a problem anymore, but you know, I still walked out overwhelmed by sadness, but mingled with just an appreciation for God's goodness and grace in that moment, for giving me what I needed. And I'd love to tell you, too, that the next day when we, dropped, when we dropped him off and really said goodbye and got in the car to head down to Dallas, that I wasn't a, a mess at the Starbucks and the barista was a little concerned, but that would be a lie as well. God and I still kept talking. But the difference is I knew now what to listen for when the emotions got really big. I had encountered God's provision in the midst of my unrest. And here's the thing about that unrest. It's been hard, but this unrest has been so, so precious because it's reminded me of some really important things. It's been beautiful, intimate encounters with God. And here's some of the things I've learned. That we can turn to God when we feel overwhelmed. He created us as emotional beings, and our feelings are are indicators of unrest inside of us. Now, the temptation is to run, to hide, to distract, to do all these things, but these emotions are a call from our creator. He's trying to get our attention, and when we're vulnerable and willing to let him speak into us, it can refresh us with a new perspective. 
If we allow God to be the God of our feelings, he'll meet us there because he loves us. I also learned that we can be humans with God. Now this sounds like it would be a no brainer, but for me, it was a lesson because we can rely on him to provide for us because that's how he made us. God doesn't judge us for having human needs, physical, emotional, spiritual. When our emotions are in overdrive, it's most likely an indicator that we are trying to get something on our own independently of God. And this is why spiritual community is so important. Elijah was the most vulnerable because he was alone. And in this season of unrest, God was amazingly gracious by providing so many people who were speaking into me, reminding me what was true when the noise was so loud. He gave me amazing, beautiful friendships with believers, a heck of a life group, spiritual mentors, and an amazing counselor, all of whom were helping me remember that even though I felt unlovable, I was not unloved by them or by God. And I can go to God for whatever I need. And then finally, when we hand our emotions over to God, our circumstances won't necessarily change, but our perspective can. By bringing our feelings to him, he lovingly and compassionately reminds us that we are his kids, that he is our God, and he's not finished with the good work in and through us. Now, sometimes this means he's correcting our misperceptions of him, reminding of us how he's been faithful in the past, how he is sovereign and good, and we can trust him. Sometimes he's going to reshape how we see ourselves because that has gotten out of whack and remind us of who he created us to be and what is true about us as his kids. And sometimes he's going to course correct some of the habits and inclinations that we have because we're choosing things that distract us from him. And he doesn't want anything to get in the way of us hearing his voice. That's the loving care of a relationship with Jesus. God is with us through the highs and the lows. And the journey is an invitation to turn to him and know that he is God. He is good. And we can trust him in all things, whether we feel it or not. Cling to that, brothers and sisters. Invite him in and be willing to listen to that still, small, beautiful, good voice in your life.